Well, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 today. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up. Um, we've been asking the question, what's the church? Um, if you need a Bible, today's a day to get one. Actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of force everybody to be in Bibles today. I know that seems weird, but I'm going to. Imagine that being in a church, we're going to be in our Bibles. Um, but if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd be happy to bring you one, and uh, we'll be able to give that to you so you can uh, see what we're reading about. And, and just so you know, a lot of the, people always ask, like, what, what's your big thing to get Bibles out? I, I, I do always do the best I can. I know Chris and Christian and whoever else gets up here to preach, Terry. But I want you to see it for yourself. I never, ever want this to be a church where you just blindly follow after. I want you to know what it is that you believe because I don't believe any of us are perfect. I want you to read this for yourself. And so, anyways, just so you know, that's kind of the heart behind it. So if you need a Bible, get a Bible, and uh, we'll, we'll start looking at it. But what we've been talking about is the church. We've been, I think, trying to revolve it around something that I just feel is a part of where the church is today. It doesn't matter where I go in the United States. I always feel like people are asking this question or making this statement maybe, there must be something more than this. I think they feel maybe like we're just showing up once a week and we're going through the motions of this thing, whatever this thing is. And, and so there's just this deep question that I think people are asking. And what we tried to do on the first Sunday, and especially like maybe for you, those of you that weren't here, we're trying to like look at it from the standpoint, if there is something more than this, what is it? And what we answered at first was, and who's the church? And it's this group of people that have wrapped their lives around Jesus and his purposes. They, they have fully engrossed themselves into what Jesus is doing. And I would say this, potentially one of the reasons that I think all of us are maybe asking this question is we haven't wrapped our lives enough around who Jesus is and his purposes. Then we talked about then we do this so that the world might see, like we want our world to see who Jesus is and maybe that's why we're bored even potentially too is because we've lost sight of the fact that this was meant to be demonstrated and shown off. Another side of it might be that we've kind of lost sight of a story. We've lost sight of this big thing that we're a part of that God has been doing for years or, or maybe it's that we kind of what Terry talked about, we've, we've kind of kind of been faithful to our own story versus to what what God is doing and last week I think another obstacle we could be facing is the obstacle of me that in order for churches to be churches me has to Galatians 2:20 be crucified with Christ so that I might no longer live but the beauty is is those people that now accept that reality that come into the full expression of what that means now Christ lives in them and he has us and maybe that's one of the reasons we're asking the question there must be more than this but today what we're going to try to talk about and I think this is really important is we're going to talk about this idea of leaders I think part of what we need to understand is, is that things are caught more than they're taught. Does that make sense? Sometimes I have to see it and see how it works before it's one of those things that I actually want to buy into it. And, and by the way, uh, one movie that I'm going to use a little bit today to kind of explain where we're going is one of the greatest movies of all time you, that you probably have heard of, Karate Kid. Don't laugh. It was cinematic phenom. It's a story, for those of you that are a little bit younger, maybe haven't seen it, a guy named Danny Russo, he, he really wants to be this guy who's a great karate fighter, 
And, and in this karate fighting kind of world that he's living in in his school, which I think was over in the valley, wasn't it? Supposed to take place in the valley. So see, we're right on the doorstep of cinematic greatness. And, um, but in it, he gets beat up. And when he gets beat up, to the rescue comes Mr. Who? Okay. One of the coolest men of all time. And when Danny sees Mr. Miyagi, his first thing that he realizes is that his karate skills are not good and he needs to invite Mr. Miyagi into his life to be trained. Now there's a point to this. What Paul's gonna now talk about is is that this endeavor of the Christian life is not just a cognitive exercise where I somehow read about it, but it's actually something that I'm to be taught. I'm to go into the learning of others so that I might be able to engage in this. And this is what he's gonna do that say that leaders do. What leaders are engaged in, he's gonna talk about, if you look down in verse 12, is he says leaders equip Okay, that's going to be very key to this, is that leaders equip. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves then is, is who are these leaders? Well, as we move along in this text, oops, here we go, in verse 11, we find out four types of leaders that we're going to talk through, just so we can kind of get our, again, our minds wrapped around this so that we know what does it mean that we're entering into this training that he's talking about. The first type of leader is the one that he talks about up in the very first aspect of it, which is the apostles. It was a word that was used of these people that knew Jesus, were around Jesus. They, the, the term apostle meant like a ship. It was an apostle ship that would take one, the, the goods from one place to another. And the idea is, is that Jesus had entrusted them with a message, and they were to take the message everywhere. The next one up there you'll see is the prophets. That's the next group of leaders. They were the ones that that literally spoke on behalf of God. They were the ones that along with the apostles wrote scripture and put that together. And in in Ephesians 2.20, if you want to just flip over there, you can see this, is that these two groups of people, the apostles and the prophets, are what they called foundational, where Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but they're the ones that basically got this church launched off and engaged in what it's doing. Now, the next group of leaders that we see up there are the the ones that it says up there where it says evangelists. Evangelists are very similar to the apostles in that they would kind of be the people that plant churches all over the place. They, They find where the gospel isn't and they take it. But the next group of leaders that we're gonna really try to focus in on because I think this is key to a local church is these ones that now have these two tasks which he says are the shepherds and the teachers. Now, to be a shepherd at this time is pretty unique. A shepherd was one that guided a flock, that took a flock, that would take them to feed them, to get them to water, that would would constantly be moving them on the behalf of whoever the chief shepherd was, but they also then would be ones who would protect. So one of the ways that we're going to know who these leaders are is that they are with the sheep, they're engaged with them, they're, they're caring for them, tending them, guiding them, protecting them. You'll see this a lot like in, in 1 Peter 5 where it talks about this group of men that are to shepherd the flock of God amongst you. And when he gets to verse 4, he says those particular ones, here's going to be key to our understanding of it. What does it mean to, to enter into training is I want you now to imitate them. Now this word becomes important. It's this Greek word mimetomai, which literally what it means is to, to mimic, to do what they've done. 
So in other words, he's telling us something about these particular leaders that we need to have in our lives that I can look at them and as a whole, as they're ones who now in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, mimic Jesus, I can do what they're doing, engage in what they're engaging and know that I'm gonna have a stamp upon me. I'm gonna start to act like them. The other thing he uses is also in, in, in Hebrews 13, 7. If you remember right, Christian preached on this. But literally the, the term is, is you become a type of them. You, you, you take on the mark of who they are. That Paul talked about this in 11.1 1, is I follow Christ. And as I follow Christ, you can follow me and you will receive this type upon you. In other words, and here's one of the scariest things about church. Are you ready for this? It is done relationally I've got to actually build these things called friendships <laughs> that's hard in our world man because we're, we're digging on like Instagram and Facebook and we want everything to kind of be detached I want my Facebook world because in my Facebook world I can imitate you easy but in real life it's very tough to imitate isn't it Paul is laying this out to the people that if you really want to get what this church thing is about is that God has graced us. If you remember this from last week, he's given us leaders and in giving us these leaders now, I'm asking you to mememai, I'm asking you to tupas, to type yourself. I'm asking you to follow them and not let them go as you learn how it is to walk with Jesus. Now, he's going to tell us, though, in, in, in verse, the next, very next verse, though, okay, so what does this look like, then, that we're supposed to be engaged in? Sorry, verse 12. This equipping or this training is something that's done for a certain group of people called the saints. Now, when I look at that, because I'm a football-minded guy, I think, oh, they were from New Orleans. I know, bad joke, but that's Okay. I'll also think of like this special class of people, this higher class of people, this people that have arrived. But the thing we have to understand about saints is that it's not these ones who have arrived at something. In fact, it has nothing to do with arriving at something. It has to do with who God says that we are. Now, oftentimes we'll connect the idea of holy or saint with someone now who's been forgiven, which is a totally true reality. And we work our tails off to help people to be forgiven, which is a, a great thing. But this word has way more to do than just forgiven. And let me, let me just make sure that we get this right now. Saints are not just ones who are forgiven or ones that are now moving away from sin but the idea of that word is actually ones who are set apart for a purpose all of you in here that know Jesus this is what I want all of us to get in this this process now of becoming the people that God's intended us to be and the way leaders need to look at every single one of us that are in here the way I need to look at all of you is as followers of Jesus Christ you have been set apart by God for a purpose now just think about this the God of the universe has set you aside for a purpose. And let me just say this, if it's for a purpose, it must be big because it's connected to God. I think one of the reasons we're bored is we look at him and we go, oh, you're forgiven? You're not going to hell? Then my job is done here. No. God didn't just save us not to go to hell. He saved us to be involved in what he's doing. 
Every one of you in here, according to 1 Peter 1, is, is blood-bought and set apart for this grand purpose to which God is involved in. And now the significance of who I am and who you are is this large thing that God is doing. And this is what he's calling us to wrap our lives into, this big thing that he's doing. So how do I then wrap myself into it? Well, the thing that leaders now do in people's lives is they equip them, look at this, for the work of ministry. Now, there's two words in there. One, it comes from this Greek word energeia, which, which means to, to, to set out to accomplish something. But the next word we, is that word that you see up there, service or ministry, which just literally means to be a servant. When we enter into training, and now this is something we as Americans don't like very much, but when we enter into training, we become servants with a purpose to accomplish the task that he's going to talk about here in a second. We train ourselves to be servants. Why? We train ourselves to be servants because that is what our master is like, Jesus. He did not come to be served, but what? Serve. The mark of this training is, and if you can just imagine Miyagi, and we'll talk about it here in a little bit, Daniel's on. He's not talking to him now about becoming this great karate master. We are becoming servant masters. Those that serve the greater reality, Jesus, and what he's doing. And you pull that all together, what this is God is seeking to build is he's not seeking to build just big buildings. He's not seeking to build big ministries. He's seeking to build his church, which is composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all over the world. But when we talk about a local church right here, it is this beautiful reality of this people that he is putting together that radically now serve one another. And in this service now, they demonstrate to the world what it is that, that God's people are like. He wants us now, he says, for this purpose to build the church. So let's, let's put our mind in this again. Let's just review. Paul is calling all of us to enter into this training. We're all called to be Danny Russo. <laughs> I can't believe I'm using this illustration, but just go with me. We're called to put ourselves under one who's going to train us and equip us to be these servants but the end of the line is, is that we build Jesus' church. Now this is hard, and so therefore he's going to start to now put out for us three different things, okay? If you look down in verse 13, he's going to tell us where we're going or, or what is it that the leaders are trying to do, okay? So look down there. Verse 13 is going to be where the leaders are trying to go. Verse 14 is going to be where we currently are or what it is that, that we're kind of a part of that the leaders need to move us away from. And verses 15 or 16 is going to tell us how he's going to do this, okay? So just look at this. 13, he's going to say, this is where we're going. Verse 14 is where we've come from or where we, we are leaving to, away from. And verses 15 and 16, now he's going to connect this idea for us of how we're going to do it. Now in verse 13, he does something really powerful, he says, now, this, this thing that we are all moving towards is this thing that we're seeking to attain. And the first thing he says in there is to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, he's going to use these statements. Now, look up there. To the unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. He's going to tell us with these little clues, this is where we're going. This is what leaders are seeking to do in your life. And here's the first one. 
He connects these two thoughts on what it means now on one end to be these ones that are, first of all, the unity of the faith, and the second one is is the knowledge of, of, of God and his Son. Now, when you put those two together, the first word has to do with this idea of the content of our information. The goal now of leaders is is to make sure that inside of the lives of people, the faith gets put into us. The story gets read into our lives over and over and over and over and over again. That means that the church should have places where people can have God's word brought into their life ongoingly because one of the directions that leaders are to take their particular sheep is towards the unity of the faith. The truths, the once and all held faith for for all time that of Jesus Christ we're to read it and know it and understand it but I love what he does next it's not just about content the next word he uses up there is he uses this word knowledge of the son of God in other words now that word is a Greek word epigenosis which which literally what it means is to now experientially come into it So it's not just that I'm to gain information, but I'm actually supposed to learn how to do this. Now, I've told you before, when it comes to like working on cars or homes, I'm the biggest moron on the planet. I was the kid that when my dad took me out to the garage, he would take me out, and I became very good at knowing the difference between the metric and the standard system with wrenches. He would say, go get me the 3 sixteenths, and I'd go get him the 3 sixteenths. Go get me the one half, I'd get you the one half. Go get me, you know, the, the flux capacitor, and I would go get you the flux capacitor. But the goal of it now is not just to have information about it, and this is a huge danger for me. Maybe I'm just confessing to all of you. I have a phenomenal ability to get stuff up in my head, but Paul doesn't want just stuff in our head. He wants it to come out in our lives. He wants us to climb underneath the hood with him, and he wants us to look at what is the radiator and how does the radiator work. He wants us to to now not just take our Chilton's information, our understanding of what it is, or our YouTube information, but to actually dig our hands into it so that it becomes a part of our experience and who God is. I think this is a reality of Matthew 7. I think this is why Jesus says to a certain group of people, depart from me because I never knew you, is that that we have people, so many of us, that have information about God, but God is not just one to be understood cognitively. He is one to be experienced. We're calling people to come with us and not just know about Jesus, not just understand who he is, but calling us to experience this very one who is the creator of the universe. And Paul's gonna tell us later that the way we experience him is Ephesians 5.18, through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So what leaders do, just to help us understand this, is it's not just that we bring information to it, but we show how this information now comes about so that we might experience God. That's the first two that he does. Look at the next two. Down in verse 13, he then tells us it's also to this idea, he says, to mature manhood. Now, this word is tricky to understand, and so I just want you to just, just to listen to me now. Everybody up here. If the first one is to us understand it, the next one is then for us to actually function as one unit. 
The idea of manhood is not saying that each and every one of us should be individually mature, but the idea is, is that an entire church now works together to become mature, that they, they are one in their concept of how they do it. Now, this is very hard in an individualistic culture. Oftentimes, in an individualistic culture, we say, okay, you're good, and you're good. You're, you're, I know you're not good. You're, you're good. I know you're not good either. But okay, here's this. We're just kind of looking around going, now everybody just take care of themselves and you be good and then I'll be good and then that's how we work. But Paul doesn't settle for that. In other words, we're either all good or we're not. He's speaking of a concept of unity, this mature manhood that he's referenced back in Ephesians 2, which helps us to understand what he's talking about, that God is not just forming anything. He is taking Jews and Gentiles and all kinds of different people, and he's pulling them together not to find their identity in their individuality, but to find their identity in Jesus, to wrap their lives and their minds around who Jesus is. And he says, that's maturity. Now, this word speaks of, though, the maturity of a, of a progression, okay? So if you can just imagine for a second. We just had a little baby in our home, and Jason, now he's a toddler. But have you ever watched a baby try to figure out their hand? I mean, I'll never forget, I'm sitting there with Jason, and I'm watching him, and I can see him, like, trying to figure out, how does this thing attached to me work? He moves from that to you can just imagine for a second, what does a toddler look like walking? You know, they look like this awkward penguin. Then they move into their childhood, right? <laughs> where I don't know if there's any kids in here, but they move into the big tooth phase. You know what I'm talking about? Where their face is this small and their teeth are this big. But it's just like, you know, they go through that phase. And then they go into like their adolescence where I was seeing this kid the other day with the lanky limbs and he's like playing basketball and he's all over the place. His point is there's a progression that happens through that that is normal, but we're not gonna quit until this entire body, not individual, but entire body works in this unison that looks like an adult. It is insufficient to say you're okay and you're okay, you're not okay. Doesn't it just stink to be those that are, okay, are not okay? The church is designed to operate cohesively as a unit. The other thing that the leaders do is they have a goal in this. At the very end, you'll see this, that the goal in which the, the third two that they're gonna bring out is the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. What leaders now are seeking to do in setting themselves out towards is bringing, the, and the idea is, is measure and stature to bring them to the height of Christ. In other words, they may not look like Christ now, but we are bringing them to that point that this church begins to operate and look like Jesus. This is a lofty, lofty endeavor. It's no wonder back in chapter four, verse seven, Paul said, this is why grace is given to everybody. And I love the term grace here. The church doesn't become that by driving people towards that. The church does not come this by mocking or, 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 or moving people in that kind of way. We help people get there through this thing called grace, which has patience and endurance and walking with people because inside of that, this is what Jesus looks like. He's trying to put together a church, Jesus is, to show off to the world, this is what my son looks like. Every 
part matters. Now, for those of you that are non-relational, you're sitting right now going, no, no, no. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, we're cool. It's just, this is the way Jesus you know, wants me to do it. You, you, me, me. No. He means for this to be a team. In fact, the term body means this idea of everything working together to support the other. A little while ago, I went to go hear a, a, a concert and I don't know if you've ever been to a concert like at the very beginning, but how awful it sounds. You ever heard that? I'm like, gosh, I'm gonna wait till like, you know, the thing actually starts, but it just sounded awful. I think that what happens is, is oftentimes we as churches, we don't realize it, but we sound like the beginning of a symphony. Everybody in the point is, is kind of doing their own thing. They're individualistic. I play in my violin. I'm, I'm playing and I'm warming up. I'm doing all these things I need to do. But you know how cool it is finally though when the conductor comes out and taps and raises his hand? Everything, shh. And it's one of my favorite moments which is just that silence before all everything just kicks. And suddenly that conductor does his thing. And in the particular song I was listening to, it was all the horns and it was all of the, the strings and all of the woodwinds. And I don't know what the other ones are because I'm really not musical. But it just, boom, everything came in in this beautiful unison. All these individual parts, though, coming into this one beautiful sound that when I sat there and I looked at it, and even right now as I'm talking to you, goosebumps came up on my arms. The church is designed to be this thing when the master Jesus taps on his baton and raises his hands and then begins to conduct that it's no longer now about an individual but the individual playing a part of this giant, this giant pericope of everything that's going on. It is supposed to be one sound. Now if you've ever been a part of something that's one sound, you know how beautiful it is. He says, this is what leaders are doing. Leaders are making sure that all the instruments are there and ready. But there's a problem that we face. It's found in verse 14. The problem we face is, is that we are oftentimes, though, still children. Now, I want you to watch something here in the play on this. In verse 14, 13, the idea is one man, one mature man. In verse 14, the problem is, is children, or actually the word actually means infants, plural. In other words, what Paul's gonna try to get us across is, is maturity equals unity, chapter four, verses one through six. Infancy means my particular individuality. Me and mine, and it's everything we talked about last week, the very thing that God is seeking to overcome inside of us so that we might be these ones that sound like Jesus. Now, the word that he's gonna connect us to is this idea of infants and they're being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. 
Now, the, the, the concept there, if you can just imagine, if you've ever been out on a boat before, you know that you're going back and forth, back and forth. I was doing a wedding um, a couple weeks ago out on a boat, and we were, we were leaving to go out, and we kind of got caught up in the break. And as you're on the break, we're trying to walk down the aisle. Now, just imagine this. The boat is doing this, and me and the bride and the groom are walking down the aisle, and it looks something like this. I hadn't been drinking. We finally make it down there, though, and I'm trying to do the service, and it's like this, and I'm starting to get, like, nauseous. I'm like, bro, you got to get out of the break. It's just tossed to and fro. And he connects it to this idea of, of doctrine. What does that mean? Doctrine is this Greek word, didaskalia, which, which has to do with the concept of worldview. In other words, what I believe about the world. The reality of what he's saying is, is that every one of us in here as believers, and especially even as churches, we've all bought into all kinds of various worldviews. I grew up in a place that was a radical, rugged individualism, which is Wyoming. We were the first state to allow women to vote, and we probably would be the first state to take it away too. We're the state in which we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We do everything by ourselves. We were the state that was the last one to, to, to raise the speed limit because we didn't want to raise our speed limit. And then finally, when we did have the opportunity to raise the speed limit, we raised it 20 miles an hour past what it should have been. Rugged, individualistic. Now you bring someone like that in, is it, it's, it's, it's this concept is, is that begins to develop my worldview. I grew up, man, God's gun and glory in that order. I grew up hunting and fishing. I, there's all these things that made Todd who he is. Now think about this. And all of you have a story that you're bringing into this place as well. Now with it is, is it's the world that we come from and it's all part of what we're bringing in here and what Paul wants them to do is to not bring their stories in, bring themselves in to have their story transformed so it's no longer about your old story, it's about this new story that's found in Jesus. This concept of didaskalia is, is that this world is constantly pounding at us a worldview that is all about me. Paul says this is what keeps us as infants. To the leaders, what he's telling to them is if you're going to do your training well and to those that are following, if you're going to be trained well, you have to understand you have a didaskalia, you have a worldview. Every single one of us in here, because of where we live and who we are, we have a worldview that is out of sync with scripture. And so the leaders not only need to understand verse 13, where it is that we need to go, but verse 14, where we've been leaving to help people to know how to bring the truth of that story in there. Now, let me, let me just throw this as parents, as a guy that was a former youth pastor and watched this a lot. Oftentimes without knowing, we as family members, and I as a dad, or if you're a mom, we train and equip our kids and we tell them, do this, don't do this, read your Bible, pray, you know, do all these different things that we tell them to do, but we know this, that they're not actually learning worldview from what we say, but from what we And then we wonder, why do they have the audacity to not do what I say, but what I do? 
This is why it's so important that the church not just be a church of words, but a church of action. Because we are training and equipping with a didascalia, a worldview, all the time, whether we know it or not. If you're someone that's a parent that's overbearing and safe and protective, you might tell your kids risk everything, but by how you now train them, they're going to become these ones that are constantly fearful and afraid to risk. If you train them now that, that, you know, money doesn't matter, but boy, it sure does matter that you go to the best school and get the best job with the best wife and the best car and the best house and the best fence and the best dog and the best two and a half children you possibly can, you're contradicting yourself. Leaders have to now look at it and go, what is the didascalia of our culture? What is the worldview that's seeping in? Remember I told you that these shepherds not only teach and train, but they also do what? They protect. He then informs us what this didascalia looks like. He's gonna connect it with two thoughts. See the word by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning. Now those are, those are two words. He uses the same Greek word to put these two together. Is this first one that he's talking about is human cunning has to do with this idea kubeo, which means to roll the dice. In other words, I'm gonna get some loaded dice and I'm gonna deceive you. In Colossians 2, the idea is a philosophy of this world. In other words, what is happening all around us all the time is that there's this philosophy that's being pumped at us. And his point is, is if you don't protect against that false philosophy and teach the correct thing and also model the correct thing, you are going to allow that thing to seep into the church. You're going to allow something to come into the brine that you never should have let come in. It speaks of fooling. When you connect it with the next word, this idea of craftiness, the idea is, is he uses the same word in, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 11 where he talks about Eve being deceived. In other words, this world grabs the truth and it looks so wonderful and it just begins to now weave itself into who we are and our thinking and our understanding. And Paul says, that's where you've come from, but you must leave it. His point is, is all that is about the me, the individual we're moving towards something grander, Jesus. And the longer and the longer and the longer that I live in it, he says now all of a sudden by this craftiness, it's gonna become a deceitful scheme. The idea is it just becomes a part of my life. A lot of you know one of my favorite sports to play is basketball. I would sit there for hours and I would shoot, 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 and I would shoot. And I didn't really get anything from it, but I still kept shooting and shooting and shooting. Habit. The problem is, is that sometimes what the church does is it practices bad habits. The world comes in and they, they kubea us. They, they bring in a deceptful philosophy or understanding of this world and its insidiousness and it then begins to get meshed in in such a way that we really like it and we believe it and we accept it into us and then we keep practicing it over and over again and it just gets stuck. It becomes our default. It's that way whether we're talking about porn. It's that way whether we're talking about using of drugs or alcohol. It's that way no matter what it is that just becomes this default part of who we are and we don't even realize it but it just becomes entrenched in us. Paul's point is, is that these leaders now need to come alongside of people and take out of them this entrenched part and replace it with something true and now he's gonna tell us how it is that it's supposed to take place in verse 15. Okay, Paul, thank you but how do we do this? 
In verse 15, if you look down there, he's going to give us the exact way now that this is supposed to happen, and I love this. He says, rather now, and you'll see this first term, speaking the truth in love. Now, the Net Bible probably has it a little bit better, but it's not there. That's okay. The Net Bible probably has it a little better when it talks about this idea of practicing the truth. So in other words, what he's actually saying here is not speaking the truth. That word speak isn't even in the original Greek. The idea is actually something that we're supposed to practice called speaking the truth. Now, remember I told you I was going to go back to Mr. Miyagi. I don't know how many of you remember the part where he has Daniel paint the fence, he has him sand the floor, and wax the car, and paint the house, right? You remember that? And Daniel keeps going through it, and all of a sudden he comes to this one point where he looks back at Mr. Miyagi and he says, I'm done with this. I'm done of being your, you know, your houseboy and doing all your particular things. And Mr. Miyagi goes, Ay! look, eyes. He kept saying that. And the first thing he says to him is, sand the floor. So Daniel starts doing something like this. He goes, no, no, sand the floor. You know, and so Daniel's like, okay. Paint the fence. All right. He's kind of doing this. He's oh, huh, huh, huh. you know, he keeps doing this thing. No, wax on, wax off. You know, and so he's waxing on, waxing off. And, and then what's the last one? Oh, yeah, paint the house, right? And Daniel's still looking at him going, what in the world? Well, the goal now, watch this, is that there's this truth and love that we're to grow up into every way of our life. And the goal is Jesus. In other words, What the leaders are supposed to do is saturate a church in Jesus and to learn Jesus. And the longer and the longer we just sit there and learn Jesus, it begins to become intuitive. And this is my favorite part of it. All of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi goes, paint the fence. And he takes a punch at him and he goes, and then he goes, you know, and he's like kicking. I'm not going to do it because I look weird. But he's just going back and forth. And Daniel's like, wah! And he's going crazy. And all of a sudden, Daniel goes, what in the world just happened? He realized that all these things, as he began to learn Mr. Miyagi, he suddenly began to do what he was asked to do. Now, that intuitive nature has to be brought into the church. His point up there is, is we have to learn him and know him. And as everyone together collectively begins to know the master, we begin to fulfill then the part that God's called us to be. And now this body that's called the church doesn't look like a baby or a toddler or a child. It doesn't look like a teenager. It begins to look like a grown man. And I would say this, as the church starts to look like that, I think we'll stop asking this question, is, is there more? And we'll start to realize this is the more. But it's this commitment to practice the truth. Now what that means is we have to forego certain things and this is not now to be a talk on get rid of TV and get rid of whatever, internet and all these different things. I'm not even saying that. Because he doesn't say that. It's the commitment to a relationship. The very thing that we as Americans are fearful to give of ourselves. I don't want to do that. If I have to give myself in a relationship, people will know who I am. If I get into a relationship, they'll expect things from me and I don't have time. If 
I get into a relationship, we just have all these reasons why we shouldn't get into these deep and meaningful relationships so that we can start to have leaders in our lives, whether we're talking elders that we're gonna, we've been kind of showing you them different bios or, or pastors that are part of our church or, or even these ones that, that lead community groups. We don't want to go in there because we're so stinking busy. I was asking my wife this. What do you think keeps most people from engaging inside of communal life where we can learn Jesus this way, where we can practice the truth? And the first words out of her mouth, which probably are the first words out of your mouth, is I don't have time. Does anybody else wonder if that's Satan's gigantic lie to us? As we were driving home last night, I asked my wife, I go, so where have we believed this lie? She goes, well, we believe the lie that we've given ourselves an excuse that we, because we have four children. Four children that are busy at school and sports and all these other things. And my gosh, I'm a holy man. Do you realize how hard it is to be a holy man and to have all these sinning sheep that I'm, I'm kidding, by the way, just, you know. But I don't have time. And we begin to just to buy into this lie. Remember I told you what Satan does. He grabs this reality and he begins to pull it in and twist it in with the truth. And we hear things like, I've got to take care of my family. I've got to take care of this. I've got to take care of that. And in all of it, we don't even realize it. But after a while, we're detached from relationships that we are desperate for to become the people that God's called us to be. I've sometimes wondered if what the church needs to ask repentance of is our busyness. I don't think we call it sin. In fact, I think what we call it is a badge of pride or just how it is. But it seems to be in the Bible that anything that keeps us from God, anything that keeps us from God, anything that keeps us from his people is something that is to be looked at as actually a sinful habit within our life and we've got to now deal with it. I really think that one reason we keep asking the question, is there more to this, it's because we have put no time into it. It just demands time. But here's the good news. His point is, is that when a church starts to do this, in the very last part of it, it says it begins to grow, and it says that it builds itself up in this thing called love. You ever started down the path on something and you really didn't want to, but then you're glad you did later? Ever done that? It was that way with parenting for me. (laughs) I'm like, I didn't want to go down the parenting route. My wife's like, let's get children. I'm like, no, they mess up your life. (laughs) But you know when you start going down the path and God's so like, interesting in how he does this he gives you the little ones and you think oh this parenting thing is so easy oh it's a divine ignorance that begins to pull you down it and as you get pulled down it the thing you actually actually miss is is that God uses it to transform you into the image of his son I think what he's talking about here is now all of a sudden if a group of people commit themselves to it and enter down this path, I will promise you it'll be achy and painy and we won't like it all the time. 
But the beauty of what he says is, is this church will now begin to build itself up in this thing called love, meaning we won't regret it. So what do we do with today? Well, I see in the back somewhere is Chris. Hey, is Chris back there? Raise your hand. Everybody look over there. Raise your hand again, Chris. That particular man is given to oversight of all of our communities. If you are currently right now not in any type of a relationship in which you have fellowship with other people and fellowship with a leader that's helping you grow, you need to now go over there as fast as you can after the service, tackle him, and hold him down until he helps you find relationship inside of this body in love. I'd like all the elders in here to raise their hands. Is there elders in here? I can't, really can't see, so you've got to raise your hand. Okay, so we have Brent that's over here. We have Alan over here. Am I missing somebody over on this side? Dan. Okay. The Bible actually says these are the people that you're supposed to model your life after. If you would like to have someone in your life, actually, the Bible says that these are the men that you are to seek out. So if you are wanting someone to show you how this thing is supposed to work, after the service, you'll catch Dan fastest because he's got a hurt knee, so he might be the one you go after first. Um, Brent's kind of spry, and Alan's probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know. He was a baseball player, though. But chase them down. Look at them and say, biblically, this is what you're supposed to do in my life, and I need somebody, whether it's you or somebody else, I need someone to mimeo, mimeomai. I need someone to tupos, to type myself after. I need some help. If you need it, find them. That is our job, and me too. But lastly, don't leave here without finding relationships. The greatest reason people sin is because they are out of relationship. Instead, those that are in relationship, watch out. Does that make sense to everybody? Is everybody with me? Woo, thank you. You with me? Because I mean it. This is so very important. Don't leave here today without this. If we're going to be the church God's called us to be, we have got to get into these relationships, okay? All right? Nod your heads. Good for you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray for our leaders right now. Would they be the, the men and those women that are leading in various capacities, the women that we can type ourselves after, that we can mimic? God, if there's sin within any of us, would you help us to deal with it? But Father, most importantly, would you build your church? Father, I want to be in a church that the people that know each other and love each other and care for each other that are in each other's lives. Father, the, the church that has one mission and goal, which is Jesus. Father, a church then that shows off Jesus Christ to the world, would you please do that in our midst? Would you continue to do what you've been doing for years and years, and as I should say it that way? 
God, I, I see inside of here young people. Would you not let them buy into the lie that somehow now is their time to sit aside, but would you grab those that are, that are 10 and younger and those that are over 10, between 10 and 18, and, and those that are up to their mid-20s, God, would you allow them to forego the lie that somehow that they need to make this section of time about themselves and would they see that the greatest way to make t- use of their time is to make it about you, would parents and those over them, would they show them what this looks like? And, and then, Father, would you create a church that just continues to grow more and more into adulthood, working together so that our world might see Jesus? God, give us a vision for showing off Jesus to the world through your church in your precious name. Amen. Hi, my name's Brent Seamer. I'm Debbie Seamer. We have three kids, all grown and with children of their own. Um, Brent and I met when I was in high school and he was in college. We met on a bicycle trip. So we rode our bikes from Canada to California together. Um, He pushed me in a ditch and we fell in love. And she still has the scars. (laughs) Um, From the time that I was a little girl, I had an understanding that God had created the world and that he was good. So I was given a gift of faith from the time I was itsy bitsy. But the first time that I really feel like I had an understanding of what God was calling me to um, was when I was 16. I heard Romans 12 and in light of Romans 11 with all the grace that God had given to the Gentiles, um, it was my reasonable service to present my life, um, acceptable sacrifice to Him. So I was 16 when I um, met the Lord in a in a way that I acknowledged that who he was in charge of my life. I think Christ entered himself into my life uh, the very first time uh, was through Cub Scout Sunday. Uh, my best friend in school invited me to come to church with him. Uh, church was something brand new. I'd never experienced that before, but that was the first opportunity, especially with a best friend. It just felt fine, no problems. and. I felt very comfortable to go back. And I think that was Christ's family that I got to meet for the very first time. And I've never been uncomfortable ever going back. So the question is, what am I passionate about at Cornerstone? I think what really uh, excites me and gets me going is just having that little part in someone's life and then seeing them uh, blossom and flourish and do some amazing things, Uh, seeing uh, people that you've had a small part in their life and now are on the mission field, uh, pursuing the gospel in other places in in the world. And so that's just an exciting thing to be part of. I'm passionate about bringing people together, whether it's around my table at the Bible study at home, um, being in people's homes, just getting to know them, Um, them getting to know me, us caring about each other's family, so just bringing people together. What is my my greatest hope for Cornerstone to be known for? And the the top of everything is that we would be known for lovers of Jesus Christ and passionate followers of Him in our families, our personal lives, our work, and that there'd be no separation between what we do at church and who we are for the rest of the week, that we would be known as a people that are passionate for God, passionate for Christ all week long. I would love for Cornerstone to be known as a church that gives the gospel 
um, both in the way that we speak and in the way that we live, with grace and with love. So as we um, live out the gospel and we tell people the truth, it's done with a measure of understanding and compassion, and it's backed up by actions that are the way that we live and the way that we treat each other would show the love of Christ.